All right. So today, um, yeah, I'm actually going to be talking, as Nick said. Uh, so this is a little bit related to the book I did with uh, with Nick, uh, Rick De, uh, Debuser, the um, looking at language from a much broader perspective than just looking at structure. So um, this is also actually a um, part of a larger approach uh, towards human behavior generally, because um, that's really what I'm interested in. I came I came into linguistics from philosophy, and I'm really interested in uh, um, how, why people believe what they believe, how they come to believe what they believe, you know, how do they create meaning? And so that's really been what I've been about for, for a long time and trying to understand also how language works. But uh, this, this talk, I'm going to be talking about more generally the creation of meaning. Um, wait, I gotta see how I can click it. So, um, so what is meaning and how do we create it? Um, let's just take an example. Uh, this was a uh, place setting that was put in front of me in a, in a cafe in Manila uh, some time ago. And I noticed something right away when uh, it was put in front of me that there's something unusual about it. Uh, we have uh, generally a sense of a normality, like what is the, the assumed normality, what things that are normal. And when we notice something out of the norms, we will try to create some kind of meaning to explain it. Um, so in this case, I saw that the serviette here had an impression on it. And so I immediately created the meaning that the waiter must have stacked the plates ahead of time to save time. Um, now, I didn't test the hypothesis at that point, but actually I found later in a cafe in uh, Australia that they actually did the same thing. And there, there I checked. Uh, that's the difference between science and hypothesis. Um, but... Um, I want to argue in this talk that meaning creation is um, a, a survival technique because we are trying to always make sense of our world. In order to survive in our world, we're always trying to make sense of what's going on around us and how we need to interact with it or, in fact, defend ourselves from it. So when we see something out of the ordinary, um, you need to possibly defend yourself from it. It's survival. You know, I mean, I haven't been attacked by too many serviettes, but still, it becomes a habit. And I'll be talking a little bit about habit as well. We can only understand something by integrating it into our knowledge base or our experiences, which is basically the same thing, um, and our general system of beliefs. Um, and so we do this, what we do is we create a context of interpretation, which is not the total context, but bits of knowledge, bits of the actual context, bits of uh, information and the assumptions that we can put together so that whatever it is we're trying to make sense of can make sense. And this, doing it this way, of course, is always subjective. There is no objective way to do this. Um, and the, so cognition and the creation of meaning, there, there's inference and understanding our surroundings. Um, and I, I argue again, this is a human instinct to try to understand the world through inference. And there are two types of inference, um, demonstrative and non-demonstrative inference and two types of non-demonstrative inference, induction and abduction. This is it's really annoying that whenever the, somebody comes into the waiting room, I, my, my forwarding and backwarding gets messed up. Um, the, in demonstrative analytic inference, also known as deduction, the truth of the premises guarantees the truth of the conclusion. And so it's just tautology. In other words, it doesn't really tell us anything. So something like all men are mortal, Socrates is a man, Socrates is mortal, and a lot of attention has been paid to that, but it's not really very helpful. In non-demonstrative or synthetic inference, the truth of the premises merely makes the truth of the conclusions probable. And so this was the problem because when this was first identified, you know, Hume talked about the problem of induction, and at that time he included induction and abduction together in non-demonstrative inference. And so he called it the problem of induction because philosophers like certainty and you don't get certainty with this type of induction. Um, wait, hold on. Uh, yeah. So Peirce, the one who separated abduction and induction, was the first to argue um, that these things are separate. And he said that the essence of an induction is that it infers from one set of facts another set of similar facts, whereas hypothesis infers from facts of one kind to another. Induction is generalization across a set of data. Abduction is positing a reason for some phenomenon. That is, it's causal reasoning. 
The main inference involved in meaning creation is abductive inference. Abductive inference is finding an explanation for the facts, that is, it's hypothesis creation. As Pierce said, there are just these three modes of inference and neither deduction nor induction can furnish me with any new idea. Unless I can get to the bottom of things by hypothesis, I might as well give up trying to comprehend them. Now, Grice had a very similar idea, um, although he was a bit later um, and seems independent. He doesn't seem to cite um, uh, Peirce. But he says, and it occurs to me that the root idea in the notion of meaning is that if X means that Y, then this is equivalent to, or at least contains as part of what it means, the claim that Y is a consequence of X. That is, what the cases of natural and non-natural meaning have in common is that on some interpretation of the notion of consequence, Y is being the case, is a consequence of X. Um, and he says the of y of x and uh, so his basic understanding here is that consciousness is fundamentally an inference from effect to cause and this is of course what underlies his um, cooperative principle that people act rationally uh, rationally to him means they do things with a purpose you can infer with their purposes and so therefore you can communicate so um can we? Can I ask Naomi to turn off the waiting room? It's really very disruptive to me to have these things coming in and messing up uh, the the screen and then also uh, messing up my clicking forward. Is it possible to just open the waiting room for everybody so they're not we're not constantly going through this? Thanks. Um, so another aspect of this, or one use, I should say, of abductive inference is to anticipate future situations by inferring the reason for some observable phenomenon. There's considerable psycholinguistic evidence for anticipation or sometimes called prediction in the psychological literature. And in fact, Andy Clark argues that brains are essentially prediction machines. And I'll come back to this and its use in communication later. Now, one aspect of the world where we apply this ability for abductive inference and also prediction is when we try to understand what other humans are doing and, or might do um, or and might do um, by inferring their intentions when they do what they do. And again, this is necessary for survival. So again, I'm talking about kind of general uh, behavior. Uh, we need to be able to infer, we, we're social primates, and so when we're interacting with other people, we, be, we need to be able to infer their intentions and, of course, our place within the society and whatever. But uh, just a, a real example is if someone comes walking at me with a knife in their hand, I need to be able to infer if they're going to cut me an apple or they're going to stab me in the gut. So this is part of what is necessary for survival. Now, this is this same ability, which I've just shown is applied in understanding the natural world, but also understanding the human world, we can apply this in understanding what other humans are doing in inferring their intention when they are purposely trying to infer, they get you to infer their intention. So they're not always trying to get you to infer their intention. Um, but there are times when someone will purposely try to get you to infer their intention. And that's how communication happens. So let's look at another real example. I used to have a woman cleaning for me, uh, uh, not cleaning, uh, cooking for me a few days a week uh, some time ago. And um, usually when I would come home, everything would be done. She'd be gone uh, and everything would be put away. But one day when I came back, um, I found that this container was still on the counter. And this was again out of the ordinary. So I needed to create some kind of meaning, some kind of reason for it being there. And so I came up with two hypotheses. One is that she just forgot to put it away. But the other one, after looking at it and noticing that there wasn't a lot of rice, I hypothesized that she was trying to tell me that I should notice that there's not much rice and then I should go buy rice. So I went and bought rice. And then the first thing she said to me the next time I saw her was, did you buy rice? And so then I knew that my, my hypothesis was correct. But this is communication, and this is really all communication is. As Grice also noticed, he says, I want to say that the utterer, one, the utterer said that P entails that two, that the utterer did something X by which the utterer meant that P 
But of course, many things are examples of the condition specified in statement two, which are not cases of saying. For example, a man in a car, by refraining from turning on his lights, means I should go first and he will wait for me. So he's basically saying the same thing, that there's really no difference between uh, the linguistic communication and non-linguistic communication. He said, surely to show that the criteria for judging linguistic intentions, which is how you communicate, are very like the criteria for judging non-linguistic intentions. And, and, and it is to show that linguistic intentions are very like non-linguistic intentions. So basically, again, saying that there is little difference. So the nature of communication is simply ostension and inference. One person uh, wishing to communicate something does what can be called an ostensive act from Latin to show ostendere. Um, so you show the, the desire to communicate, which is also involves inference on the part of the addressee to recognize this as a communicative um, attempt. And then the other person, the addressee, must infer the communicative intention behind the ostensive act. Communication then is a process of ascension and inference regardless of the mode it takes. As communication is based on non-demonstrative inference, communication is inherently non-deterministic. Language simply provides clues for constraining the inference. Communication is not something that happens easily. As Karl Popper said, always remember that it's impossible to speak in such a way that you cannot be misunderstood. There will always be some who misunderstand you because it's not a coding decoding proposition is inferring somebody's intentions in doing whatever it is they did to in the attempt to communicate. The degree to which the hearer is forced to abduce a particular interpretation depends on the degree to which the form of the utterance constrains the hearer in choosing the contextual assumptions necessary to achieve an interpretation that makes sense in that context. There has been a mistaken notion in linguistics that the meaning is all in the form, but this is certainly not the case. Um, so this, let me use another real example. One time I was calling Roll uh, and I said, Alan, you know, I called the name Alan and a student in the back of the room just pointed at a chair next to him that was empty and said toilet. Now, if we believe that uh, communication is coding and decoding, then we must say that the meaning that I created is all in the word toilet. And the meaning that I created actually from his ostensive act, which is not just the word toilet, but the word the toilet and the, the gesture. In a lot of linguistic discussion, they separate the two, but, but they really are one ostensive act, the, the two together. The whole, you need the whole package. So from this whole package, this whole ostensive act, what I inferred was that Alan had been in the room, he had left the room to go to the toilet, uh, but he is coming right back, and so I should not mark him as absent. And that was the whole purpose of this person uh, using that ostensive act. Now, what was important about this is not um, the so-called meaning of toilet as a word by itself. If we look up the word toilet in the Merriam-Webster dictionary, we can find a lot of meanings, the dressing table or an active process of dressing or grooming yourself, a livy, a water flush toilet that you defecate into. These are not what is important here. What is important in this um, example is that he, when he said toilet, um, I was able to include in my context of interpretation information that I know about how people use toilets. In other words, we normally will, if we're in a public space, we'll go to the toilet and then come back to the place we were. And we don't stay long. I mean, you could stay long in the bathroom if you wanted to, but most people don't stay any longer than they have to, and they, go, and they often go back to what they're doing. So this is how I was able to create the meaning that he was coming right back and I should not mark him as absent. Now, just think about how different my interpretation would have been if he had said canteen, or if he had said library, or if he had said especially home, then I would not have created that meaning at all. So um, the so-called meaning of toilet is not really what's important here. It's that he mentions toilet because it's something that will evoke certain conceptions in my mind that will allow me to understand that he's coming back soon. So I shouldn't mark him as um, absent. Now, as I mentioned, recognizing the communicative act itself as a communicative act is inference. You need inference to do that. And recognizing the form of the ostensive act, in other words, identifying what it is, like what language it is, or 
what the forms are. Um, this is not so obvious to people when they're reading something that's typed or whatever, but if you've ever read uh, a handwritten letter or something, especially in a foreign language you don't know that well, there's, you, you can understand how much inference is involved in actually trying to understand uh, what the letters even are uh, in there. So um, the form doesn't need to be familiar. Because of this, the form doesn't need to be familiar to the addressee as long as the addressee can infer the speaker's intention. So we have things like this where um, this company uh, put together um, these, these are Irish uh, icons that they put together on St. Patrick's Day. And um, everyone that reads this probably can create a certain meaning out of it, but there are no letters here. There cannot be any coding decoding. It's all simply inference from the particular shape, from the, the particular knowledge of the company and um, other factors that you can create the meaning that you do. And our creation of meaning related to all things, not just language, because again, I'm speaking very generally, is relative to what we know, what is salient to us and our perspective. So for example, um, when people, uh, these were cushions I had in my house in the Philippines uh, some time ago. And when people would see this, they would often say five to five if they look at it from this perspective. But then if they looked at it from a different perspective, they'd say two, five, two. Um, so it's really just whether you look at it from one angle or another, you create totally different meaning. So it means that uh, it, means it shows that the meaning is not in the form itself. In fact, these are not really numbers at all. But we, when we see something, we try to make sense out of it if we can. In this case, if you happen to know Arabic numerals and these images seem similar to Arabic numerals, we will try to create meaning out of it in that way. Another aspect of perspective is what is salient to us. So. This is a picture of the new um, sports complex in my university. And when they first built it, they didn't give it a name. They asked people to come up with uh, suggested names. And so we were, uh, we were talking about this one time amongst some of my colleagues and my, uh, one of my colleagues called it the pallet building. And uh, at the, I had not, that had not occurred to me at all, even though I thought, um, you know, experimental phonetics and, you know, and, and, uh, and whatnot, phonetics generally. Um, but um, he was at that time, and he is an experimental phoneticist, and he was working in particular at that time on a paper about how the shape of the palate affects the sound that we find in languages. And so for him, the palate was the most salient concept that came to his mind when he was trying to create meaning out of looking at this image. Um, the speaker, uh, on the other hand, also makes inferences uh, as to what the hearer will be able to understand and then uses the ostensive act most likely to facilitate the inferential process of the hearer. That's the general case in, in conversation. In literature and humor, these are interesting exceptions because um, in literature and humor, you actually try to make the person do extra work, extra inferential work. And I think the reason for this um, is that just like with our other um, survival, our survival instincts, so we have an instinct for sex, we have an instinct to eat, and we enjoy doing those things. I think evolutionarily, it's a good thing we, we developed an enjoyment of doing those things. And so it helps us to survive as a species and as uh, individuals. And I think with this uh, instinct as well, we get um, pleasure from doing inference. And so when uh, we read literature and when we, read, when, when we are exposed to humor, we like doing um, extra inference. It makes us feel good when we can understand. So this is something that I think is tied to the fact that it is a survival technique. Now, communication can take place with or without language, as I showed, and functional MRI studies show that non-linguistic and linguistic communication are processed in the same areas of the brain, including those areas referred to as Broca's areas and Wernicke's areas, which have been thought to be related to language, but they're really more generally created, uh, uh, related to meaning creation. Uh, language simply helps to constrain the inferential process to make it easier for the hearer to infer the speaker's intention. The difference between non-linguistic communication and linguistic communication is the difference of tool or mode with resulting differences in precision, like the difference between ripping bread into pieces with your hands and cutting it carefully with a knife. 
The inferential process can be more or less constrained, but never constrained completely in a fully deterministic way. So even though like when we write laws, we try to constrain the interpretation as much as possible. So there's no room for other interpretations, but yet we still need a Supreme Court to tell us what the laws mean. And the interesting thing is that different sets of judges on the Supreme Court can tell us the law means different things. So there's never a fully deterministic meaning. So a problem with much of the psycholinguistics literature is the assumption that meaning creation involving language is special, but they never compare it to meaning creation that doesn't involve language. My hypothesis is that if we did such a study, we would find no difference. And I did apply for funding three times. I applied for funding to do um, imaging studies. I was working with a neuro, um, neurological specialist in Canada um, to try to look at um, how abduction works in the brain, like comparing linguistic and non-linguistic abduction. But unfortunately, I never got the funding. As meaning creation and communication depends on inferring the intention of a communicator performing some action, there is then no semantics in the sense of words or signs having meaning divorced from actual use by some communicator. That is, it's all pragmatics. Uh, when we attempt to understand something out of context, there's another reason why it's all pragmatics actually, is that really there are two things in linguistics, there's form and there's use. And form arises out of use, as I'll talk about in a minute. And so really it's all pragmatics, it's all use. When we attempt to understand something out of context, we create a context in which a possible motivation for the ostensive act would make sense. That is, we create its meaning by selecting a particular frame uh, in which to give it its meaning. Okay, so now turning to the nature of language, um, what is language? Language is culture. Uh, so um, what is culture? Uh, the evolved sets of the culture is the evolved sets of social conventions for carrying out particular tasks, and language is the set of conventions for carrying out the task of communication. The rules of language and language use are evolved sets of social conventions for constraining the process of interpretation that have emerged out of our interaction, much like our social conventions for preparing and eating food. Language is not a fixed system, it's human behavior and changes constantly as it's an emergent phenomenon like other aspects of our group behavior. Our knowledge of language is simply knowledge of how words and structures have been used before to achieve a certain purpose. As Adele Goldberg said, our knowledge of language is knowledge. It's basically just like any other knowledge. We use this knowledge as part of the context of interpretation for inferring the speaker's intention and using certain words, but the meaning we create will be unique to that particular context and so extends the use of the words and structures. Language isn't purpose-built and it doesn't exist as an entity anywhere. It is constantly emerging as a side product of our trying to communicate. It's an emergent complex adaptive system like an economy or a path through a field. So a path through a field is a common um, parallel uh, used to talk about language like Rudy Keller and whatnot, but I actually uh, realized this myself when they were walking across such a field uh, before I read Keller's work. Um, the, this is actually an actual field where I worked in Australia at La Trobe University, and um, I, the, it wasn't that people were trying to create this path. The idea of this is that people are just trying to get from point A to point B in the most efficient way. And if enough people do that, then the grass gets trampled and the path emerges. So over time, you get a much more clear path. And Nick has also talked about how once you, some, some people start doing this, it also attracts. It's also because, you know, this also happens with complex adaptive phenomena, you have attractors. So it attracts other people to do the same thing. And so this thing can develop even further. But it's not that people try to create a path, it's just they're trying to do something and it emerges out of the, uh, as like a side product and uh, of trying to get from point A to point B in the easiest way. Now, it can become to be recognized. So a path uh, through a field can be um, eventually paved and with language words can be put in dictionaries and grammar books are written, but that's just a snapshot of the uses of the words and patterns up to that point in terms of language. It's not really what, um, it's, it of course should never be prescriptive or anything like that. Now what gets repeated and what extensions of meaning are evidenced in the usages 
is related to the cognitive categories and construal of the world of the speakers. And so the patterns that get repeated will reflect the culture and cognitive construal of the people. And the language will embody the culture and conceptions of the people. And this is often talked about as ethnosyntax, and that's the title of um, Nick's 2002 book, uh, Ethnosyntax. Now, borrowing can introduce new concepts and tools, but the ultimate meaning of the borrowed item will be determined by the use to which it is put. And so it's the same processes for native items. It's the meaning is use, which of course goes back to Wittgenstein, but even earlier than that. Um, so we have words in English like gung-ho, uh, which means to have great spirit or enthusiasm. It actually comes from the word gung -ha in Chinese, which means industrial cooperative. Um, and so it's very hard to see the link between the two, but it doesn't matter because once we borrowed the word gung-ho, it's ours, we can do whatever we want with it. And the same thing with the use of the fork and spoon in Southeast Asia. They um, have borrowed the tools, uh, the spoon and fork in Southeast Asia, but they use them in a very different way. And so the meaning of the fork and the meaning of the spoon in their system of eating is very different from the meaning in our system. So these are just showing parallels in between linguistic and non-linguistic culture. Now, getting back to anticipation um, and prediction, the ability for anticipation is also a key factor in communication. As perception of a speech act is linear, inter interpretation is also linear. And this is why the initial segment of the utterance, the theme is so important. The theme as talked about in the Prague School Linguistics is the starting point, the speaker's starting point. It doesn't necessarily include topic. I, in my paper, La Pola 2019, I argue that we need to separate topic and comment from theme ream because there are languages like Tagalog where the theme is important in terms of packing certain information uh, into the theme, but the topic is not one of those things generally. It's, it occurs at the end of the clause. Um, the reason why this is important is because we don't wait for the whole utterance to be completed before we start creating the context of interpretation. We start building the context of interpretation with the very first word, and then that context of interpretation influences the creation of the context for interpreting the rest of the utterance, including anticipation what is to come, anticipating what is to come in the interaction. This is talked about in interactional linguistics as projection. And it, this includes two aspects, the ability to guess what's coming up in the interaction, but also the grammatical mechanism for helping the hearer to make such guesses. And I've argued that this is a typological parameter that languages differ in terms of what they pack into the theme. So English packs a lot of information that tells you what the grammatical mood of the clause is with the first word and things like that that Michael Halliday talked about. Um, but it also then you get a language like Tagalog where they do it totally different, but they're still they're functionally, I mean, they're still packing certain types of information into the theme of the clause. And Hopper argues that projection is what makes verbal communication an open and collaborative affair. As so participants develop a sense of where the discourse is going, they tacitly mold it, allow it to continue, harmonize with the speaker's goals, interrupt it with their own contribution, offer supportive tokens of various kinds or predict when their turn will come. So this is something that's been looked at quite a lot in interactional linguistics and conversational analysis more generally. Now the flip side of this is that projection manifests as expectations and these along with the addressee's preconceptions, you know, this original knowledge base influence the meaning the address creates and so can get in the way of creating a meaning that the communicator hopes the addressee will create. And this is the origin and nature of unintended bias. So a lot of times we just do not understand something because we assume it means one thing when because of our expectation, when actually it, it means something else or that it, it's intended to mean something else. So and this happens quite a lot. And if anybody's, this is Murray Gelman, the, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, um, uh, told me that the best way to get a rejection letter is to submit something that's totally new. And the reason for that is because people have no way to assimilate it. If it's totally new, you cannot assimilate something new. And so like when I first submitted this to language in 1997, this idea, the reviewers just had no clue about, they, it was just so alien to them that they understood it in a totally different way than I intended it. They, they kind of understood in a way that kind of made sense to them, which is nice evidence of the theory itself, but 
it didn't help me get a publication. Anyway, um, culture is habit. Uh, we are very much creatures of habit. And once we have a habit, it's hard to change, including habits of language and even thought. And these habits are, I'm not talking about just what we normally think of as habits like smoking or something like that. It's just, if you really pay attention to your, to your activities every day and you become very aware of them, you realize how much of what we do is habit. So if you, and these become our rituals, like how you take a shower, how you brush your teeth, how you eat your breakfast, all of these things are rituals that we do. Now, what happens though, is that our sensibilities arise from our, our rituals because we tend to think that the way we do something is the correct way to do things and other people that do it differently are doing it wrong. So this is a problematic aspect of this. Now, language use is also a habit, um, and, it, and they're very hard to change because have, it's a habit that we engage in almost every day of our lives from the time we're very little, um, and very commonly throughout the day, uh, probably more so than any other activity. Um, and so one of the simplest examples of the habits we form is in learning our first language is we learn to categorize certain sounds together as allophones of a single phoneme and to distinguish other sounds that uh, our language treats as distinct phonemes. And this is entirely habit, but as anyone who has learned a second language knows, it's difficult to change a habit and make distinctions you're not used to making and hear distinctions you're not used to hearing. So um, these things even influence our perception. So for example, a native English speaker will hear a voiceless unaspirated stop like in Beijing, as the same as a voice stop like in boy, um, as if they're the same sound. And they won't hear the difference, for example, in the four words in Mandarin, you know, ma, 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 which are different tones. I remember when they first told me that when I was a teenager learning Mandarin, and they said, ma, 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 or four different words. I said, yeah, right. I, I totally didn't believe them. It took months before it just suddenly clicked in my brain. So these are habits. These are habits of perception, habits of thinking, um, you know, habits of seeing even is affected. And this is what's involved in second language learner accents because it's habits of muscle use as well, how you uh, pronounce things. The point is not that you can't learn another set of habits. It's just that it's difficult. And so there's no real critical period for learning language or anything like, or anything else, really. These are all general, this is same for all other aspects of human behavior, that the longer you've had one particular set of habits, the harder it is to change. So in, in Taiji Chen, they actually even say this, that to, to learn the form is easy, to change your form is difficult, because once you've developed habits, they're hard to change. And so this is true of language, but it's also true of, uh, like there's a video online you can go to about a guy who learned to ride a bicycle that works backwards. So you turn the handlebars one way, the wheel goes the other way. And he, it took him eight months to learn to ride the bicycle that way. But then, um, and but his son was, who had just started learning to ride the bicycle, was able to learn it in only three weeks to ride the backwards bicycle. And in my case, the person, my personal experience was like driving in the US for 30 years uh, on the US side of the street, and then moving to former British colonies and learning to drive on the British side of the street um, even after 20 years of driving on the British side of the street, I'm still not fully comfortable with that. I, it's just, so don't, don't ride in my car. Um, it's, it's, I never feel as comfortable as I did when I was driving initially with my initial set of habits, because you constantly have to be using uh, executive control to suppress one set of habits to allow another set of habits. And this is what's talked about as bilingual advantage, but it's also a kind of disadvantage because when you're in your initial set, you're constantly suppressing some other set. It's also difficult to learn a new way of thinking, especially if you try to do it using words and concepts that are part and parcel of the old way of thinking. Um, it isn't that language fully determines thought. The language evolves the way it does because of the importance the culture puts on constraining inference in, in certain ways. And this process is always ongoing as language is always changing. So the culture and cognition of the people, how they profile events, influences the language but then once it becomes a convention for the people a cognitive category for them it is passed on to future generations generations and so will influence how people think about those things and what they pay attention to and so 
And we can see this very clearly in the work of, say, Melissa Bowerman, um, the late Melissa Bowerman, where she was showing how uh, when children acquiring the, the native, the categories of the languages that they speak, that initially they don't have those categories and they acquire them as they acquired the language. Um, when we speak a language, we subscribe to the conventions of usage associated with that language. And those conventions influence the way we talk about things and ultimately how we uh, think about them. So when I was a kid growing up in the US, I knew about shrimp, prawn, and lobster as three, my understanding of them was they were three very different animals. They have three very different names and three, they're, for us, they're three different concepts. But for the Chinese, uh, when I learned Chinese, um, I, I, you know, I, they, they're really just different types of, different size, xia. So there's a xia for shrimp and, and da xia or big shrimp, and then long xia, dragon shrimp, which just means really big shrimp. Um, and, and when I learned this, you know, it's like, I don't know, 18 years old or something, uh, some uh, 19 years old, whatever. Um, it was really a shock to me that people could see things so differently that from what I had been used to. And this was kind of the beginning of uh, my fascination with how cultures understand things differently. To say that the original development of a particular pattern is motivated does not imply that the motivation will always be transparent. In many discussions of ethnosyntax, the opaqueness of certain structures is taken to be evidence that it's not possible to show a link between language and other sets of convention. Yet in many aspects of our lives, again, it's a general principle, once a particular way of doing something is conventionalized, the original motivation may be lost while the conventionalized behavior continues simply because it's already a convention, such as wearing a necktie, um, or the habit of pouring milk before the tea in Britain, or some of these things like uh, when you buy nasi lemak in uh, Malay uh, areas here, like Singapore, Malaysia, um, it used to be wrapped in banana leaf, but, and people got used to that, but now they use paper, but they make it look like banana leaf. Uh, that's the thing on the left. And they used to have a guy standing in the road with a baton uh, going up and down, to warn motorists of construction sites, but now uh, people got so used to that. So when they wanted to replace that with a non-human, they had to actually make something that looked human. This is what's called skeuomorphism. So skeuomorphism, the reason for skeuomorphism is because of our cognitive habits that we expect something to look like what it used to look like, even if you change it. So uh, even though you've changed the paper, you make it look like a banana, uh, banana leaf. Uh, even though it's not a person anymore, you make it look like a person. And then we have uh, also, just out of habit, we have these expressions like pig in a poke, pass the buck, put in the hopper, stars in the firmament, carriage return, kaching, dial the phone, RSVP. Uh, especially in Australia, RSVP means make a reservation. Um, so they've made it their own. Uh, and then this, this image, the... Um, uh, what's called a floppy disk. This thing is actually not a floppy disk. It's very hard. Um, so this is actually a double, um, if you can see my picture, this is actually a double example because this thing is called a floppy disk because this was a floppy disk. This is floppy. And there is even earlier one is bigger. I actually used these when I started computers. Um, uh, and so the first one was changed, uh, but they kept the name out of habit. They kept the name floppy disk, even though it wasn't floppy anymore. And now uh, young people have probably never even seen one of these, these disks, but we still use it as our icon for saving uh, whatever it is on our uh, computer software. And then we have examples like in uh, uh, phonetics, uh, like the word for crow in Chinese, it's now pronounced wu, but we can reconstruct that in um, old Chinese as ah. So it's probably onomatopoetic at that time, but it's no longer onomatopoetic, so we don't see the motivation for it anymore, but, um, but it's still there historically. And then the word for bank is, is literally silver company, uh, because in the past they dealt with silver. Uh, all you know, exchanges were done with silver. But they and they no longer use silver, but they still maintain that name, uh, Yinghang, for silver company. And in the uh, during the pandemic, they were talking about different cases of people who are in an isolation ward. And this person said, "My he was not lonely because my mobile mobile was buzzing and ringing off the hook." 
Now, if we look at phones, um, in the old days, we had hooks on phones that you could hang up the receiver on. And we still say hang up the phone. Uh, but the, the modern phones, of course, have no hook. And so, but we still can use hang up the phone. We still can say ringing off the hook as this person did. It's just purely habit. So the motivation is not always obvious, but we continue our habits. And of course, a, um, uh, in there's also been talk about perseverance in, in grammatical phenomena as well, where we morphology gets layered because we maintain the old morphology, even if it becomes kind of meaningless to us or not so useful, and we keep layering other morphology on top of it. Okay. So now, uh, Christian Lehman asked me, how, does, how do we study languages using this, um, this way of looking at things? Um, now, Roman Jakobson said that uh, languages differ essentially in what they must convey and not in what they may convey. Um, but this is looking at it from the, point, the speaker's point of view. From the hearer's point of view, we can say that languages differ not so much in what can be understood, but in what must be understood or what you know, the speaker needs to constrain the interpretation of. Um, and so each language has its own history of development, just as societies differ as to what tools they use for a particular activity, for example, using chopsticks as opposed to using your hands or a fork for eating. And these tools can vary in terms of specificity. The tool we think of as language can differ between societies in terms of how specialized the structures are and to what purpose they have conventionalized. Conventionalization, which includes any usage really, but it, it subsumes grammaticalization and lexicalization. It occurs after repeated use. And since it takes more effort to constrain some aspect of the interpretation rather than not, it must be important to the speakers to constrain that aspect of the interpretation. Otherwise they wouldn't do it often, so often that it could get um, conventionalized. And so that must be a salient aspect of the meaning for the speakers. And again, this is a, a general uh, principle of human behavior that the things that we will do in life are those things that are important to us. Grammaticalization is of, of constructions because constraining interpretation is situation specific, not word specific. And once conventionalized, again, as in other aspects of culture, it can be extended in use beyond the initial prototype use. And this is one of the interesting things about construction is that once you have a construction, um, and grammaticalization, I argue, also is, is just of construction. But once you have the construction, it can take on a life of its own, just like other things. So I, once I have the construction, um, I can use it for other things within language. Uh, so like um, we use an interrogative form to give an order, you know, the so-called indirect speech acts. This is a simple way of explaining indirect speech acts. It's just once we have a construction, we can do whatever we want for it. And it's still, it's important to infer the, the speaker's intention. That's really all that's involved there. Um, but this is true also of other tools. So I, you know, a hammer uh, looks the way it looks because it was designed for hammering nails, but that doesn't mean I can't use it as a doorstop. It makes a very effective doorstop. Um, so we can do things beyond their, their use. And, and constructions themselves also, um, one of the interesting things is when they get extended in use, Adele, I think, has talked about this one, uh, this type of thing where you can say, like, you know, he sneezed the, the, the napkin off the table. Um, or uh, one of the things that I've talked about in, in the past is uh, the expression, you know, beat the hell out of something or somebody, uh, where I that kept getting extended in my own usage. I was using it for all kinds of things to the extent that I even said that when I was selling my car one time, I said I babied the hell out of my car. So you, once you have the, the thing, you can extend it in its different usage. Now, the constructions that we find in languages can differ in three ways. Do they constrain or not constrain the interpretation of particular conceptual space? For example, Chinese has no grammatical marking of the time of an event relative to the didactic center. That is, there are no constructions for marking tense. English has several constructions for marking tense. So there's a difference in whether or not they, they mark that particular conceptual space or constrain that particular space. Um, and then the second part is, if they constrain the interpretation of a particular conceptual space, how much do they constrain it? So, for example, English constrains the interpretation of tense to past, present, and future, 
Japanese constrains the interpretation of past versus non-past. In Ruang, a language I worked on in Kachin State in northern Myanmar, constrains the interpretation of non-past and four degrees of past tense. So depending on how far you are in the in the uh, in the past, whether it's a couple of hours ago or uh, you know six hours ago, not exactly six hours, but like within today, but more than two hours ago. Uh, whether it's like a couple of days ago or a couple of years ago, you have to mark those differently. So that's that's a different uh, degree to which we constrain past tense uh, between English and Rolong. And the third aspect is if they constrain the interpretation of a particular aspect of a conceptual space, how do they constrain it? So in, in English, for example, if a speaker wants to say something like he's washing his hair, I'm sorry that my slides are not always clear because I converted this from PDF to uh, to uh, PowerPoint and it kind of got messed up a little. Uh, so if, if somebody wants to say he's washing his hair, uh, the speaker must constrain the interpretation by um, putting a possessor, uh, using a possessor construction on the, the, the noun there, uh, the, the word hair. In the same situation though, a Rolong speaker or a French speaker would be required to constrain the identification of the possessor of the hair, but would use a reflexive or middle voice construction. Now, I mentioned French and Rolong, they're both using a, a kind of middle voice construction, but the way that they do it is again different. So we can also break this down as um, uh, Croft talks about with different strategies. So you have the same kind of function, but you're a different kind of strategy. Um, now, Nick had asked me uh, how this relates to animal communication. Uh, is human communication special? And my answer is that human communication is not special in kind. Primates and some other animals communicate in the same way we do, in other words, using inference, but don't have, don't have the same degree of inferential abilities. They have smaller frontal lobes. The, most of this inferential stuff is going in the medial frontal lobe there. Um, and do not have the physiological capability for the range of sounds that we can produce. So they are communicating. And, and if you, you look at the studies um, of primates in the wild, not the ones in, in labs, but you look at the ones in lab, in the wild, um, there's quite a lot of very good evidence of communication going on. And, you know, coordinated action, so, you know, hunting, uh, it not only... Uh, uh, like chimps and things, but uh, porpoises and uh, as well, dolphins. Uh, some final remarks. I'm running out of time, actually probably out of time. I promised Nick I would keep it short. Uh, the view I'm presenting here is that the fundamental aspect of communication is not the linguistic structure, but the interaction of the communicator and the addressee in performing a communicative activity. The role of the context in the performance of this activity involving the interpretation of utterances is not to supplement semantic meaning. The context is the base on which all communicative activity and meaning creation depend. That is, rather than saying that the context constrains the interpretation of linguistic form, I argue that it's the linguistic form that constrains the creation of the context of interpretation, much like using a spoon constrains the activity of eating. Much work in pragmatics is focused on examples of language that are ambiguous because of the assumption that language usually presents fully deterministic meaning. But that's not the case. The basic nature of communication is that it's non-deterministic as it's inference-based uh, and it's based on non-deterministic inference. And so we should be focusing on how speakers try to get addressees to create particular meanings by constraining the interpretation in particular ways that lead to the conventionalization of the different linguistic constructions. The idea of separating language not only from context, but from human behavior altogether, for example, seeing linguistics as the scientific study of language as if language is some object that we can study uh, independent of anything else rather than the study of communicative behavior is short-sighted and has limited our ability to see what's actually going on. Throughout the history of modern linguistics, um, linguists have been trying to make linguistics scientific, uh, but the idea of what is scientific and how to do that has changed. In the early 20th century, being influenced by logical positivism, that meant ignoring meaning and attempting the reductionist analysis of structure and coming up with laws and postulates and things like that. The mistake was seeing science um, as defined as for uh, simple sciences like physics and chemistry, 
But the phenomenon we're interested in is a complex phenomenon, like other behavioral sciences, not amenable to the same methods. You cannot reduce things. You cannot use this reductionist approach. Another mistake was assuming the complexity and, uh, and the meaning was in the form. The form is actually simple. It's just a string of sound. It is our interpretation and our analysis that's com complex. I argue in a more recent paper for uh, a return to the romanticist view of linguistics as being about trying to understand the worldview of the speakers and how that's manifested in their communicative behavior. I teach this in two courses at NTU, uh, the university I'm at, one where I present the theory and show how it can deal with many of the issues that, we, that have been problematic for structures, linguistics, and for analytic philosophy. And another comparing languages using the method of comparison I just mentioned, but also looking for cultural and real world causes of those patterns. And the students love these courses because it makes linguistics real for them. And it helps them to understand their own and other meaning creation and behavior more generally. You know, they have them go out every week. They have to write about their own experience in meaning creation and, and notice things like their habits, like, you know, what, what factors cause them to create a certain meaning in a certain context. Why does communication go wrong sometimes? And they, they, they see this as incredibly useful and they say linguistics is everywhere. And they often complain, why weren't we taught this in year one? Because I teach it in year four when they're about to graduate and then they, they finally learn something that they feel is useful. Um, so um, I think I'll just end it there and say, thank you very much. And actually, I, uh, this is a very, very short uh, description of a, of a very big kind of idea where I normally have a lot of examples. This is normally a six hour lecture that I've tried to condense down into uh, 45 minutes or so. Um, but I have the, a full course on this, uh, uh, videos of the full course of this uh, at this website here. Uh, you can scan or click on the link and uh, access the, the full course on this called The Creation of Meaning. Okay, thank you very much. I want to thank also Nick for uh, inviting me and uh, for his kind invitation again, uh, his invitation and his uh, introduction. And so thank you very much. <laughs>